As Christmas comes each year, there are many things that remind us that Jesus is the reason for the season. I think I've commented before on some of the uh, silly things that end up happening around Christmas time. The reminders <clears throat> that Jesus is the reason for the season have become less and less common outside of the church and outside of Christian homes. Um, that even the word Christmas is starting to become a little bit taboo in our nation. So you don't, you no longer have Christmas break in the schools. Often you have winter break and um, we don't want to offend those who don't celebrate Christmas. So you don't say Merry Christmas to anybody. Although I've seen, you know, in my, in being out in the last week, I've, I've had several people in, in public places and at stores say Merry Christmas to me, but typically it's after I have said Merry Christmas to them, then they know it's safe, they can say it, and there's sort of this relieving, like, oh, Merry Christmas to you too. Like, they, they weren't sure what they should say before that. <clears throat> Slowly but surely, we're seeing everything that has to do with Christmas altered to make it politically correct. Stores no longer have decorations that are even remotely Christian in many places. They'll have Santa Claus, and they'll have snowflakes, and they'll have gifts. They'll even have stars. Here we go. Yeah, here's a perfect display, right? <clears throat> Happy holidays. It doesn't say Merry Christmas, I don't think. You've got some... Hmm. you got a menorah. Is that a menorah over there? Okay. No matter what your, uh, your opinion on nativity scenes, gone are the days of public places with nativity scenes. Um. <clears throat> so... Sometimes you see people pushing back against this, this sort of secularizing of Christmas or even removing of the word Christmas. With, I, I saw one time outside of a restaurant a sign that said, we're not afraid to say it. Merry Christmas. Well, the very fact that they would have to say that indicates that there's pressure not to say it, right? And so what bravery... <laughs> What bravery. <laughs> but there is one place that has been the slowest to have the politically correct treatment. Songs. I don't know if you guys have been out enough recently to hear the, the songs that are being played in public places, uh, whether you're at a store, or at the mall, at Starbucks, or even just on the radio. Um, at least on the uh, at least on the the country station that I flipped to and, and heard Christmas music on, and and in the classical, uh, what is it ninety point nine? You, you've got you've got some some Christmas music being played in in songs in music. <clears throat> you will still hear very politically incorrect things. You'll still hear very Christian Christmas songs. 
you'll hear joy to the world at Starbucks. Joy to the world. Granted, it was only the first verse, but I was still amazed that none of the words had been changed. Think about the lyrics. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. That's that's a declaration of the gospel being broadcast over the speakers of public places all over the place. Nobody thinks anything of it. Well, they're starting to think something of it. Even the songs are beginning to change, right? But it's quite offensive if you think about it. I wouldn't have been nearly as surprised to hear Silent Night. Silent Night ends with sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. And that seems like quite a different message than joy to the world. Now, some of you might be smart aleck enough to say, but that's not a Christmas song originally. And I say, there's a reason we sing it at Christmas time. Because it's a Christmas song. No matter what it was originally written for. So what's the deal between the difference between Silent Night and Joy to the World? Do they have different messages? People can really rally behind sleep in heavenly peace still. Everybody still believes in peace. We're not afraid to tell people that the message of Christmas is peace on earth. But the reality is that those two songs are intertwined. They're related to one another. They're not in conflict with each other. They're both a part of the same Christmas message. It's true that Christmas has everything to do with peace on earth. We see the coming of the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, and his coming is very often associated with peace. We know today that this Messiah is Jesus. And one of the names that we know him by is Prince of what? Prince of Peace. This comes from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Let's read that. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, as you read the words Prince of Peace in context, it's startlingly strong for, the, for, for a text that's prophesying peace, isn't it? <clears throat> we see this promise of peace in many places. Those of you familiar with the New Testament story of Jesus will recognize the donkey 
as a dead giveaway that Jesus is being spoken of here in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Again, it's kind of strange, this idea of peace being presented in such a violent way. We have cutting and dominion and triumph right along with peace in there. In Isaiah 53, one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus, we read, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now this time we've got outright violence in with the peace. Bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace. We see this over and over, this promise, the Messiah will come and he will bring peace. And then when Jesus is born, an angel is proclaiming the good news to the shepherds, when suddenly the angel is joined by a multitude of the heavenly hosts. Now, multitude is a translation from Greek, as all the words are, right? And the, the technical meaning of... The word, the the original Greek word, I think is a lot. A lot. We're talking about a lot of angels. That's what multitude means, kids. A lot of angels. And they come and they say, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Goodwill toward men is what it says in the King James Version, right? For those of you who have been in the church and in Christian homes, you know that this is why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus, who is fully God, came into the world as a fully human baby. And the angels declared that he was the Savior. And so Christmas is the celebration of his birth. And the references to the Messiah bringing peace don't stop in the Old Testament, but continue right on into the New Testament. Immediately when Jesus comes, peace is proclaimed by the angels. And then later in his life, as Jesus is talking to his disciples about how he has to leave them, He makes this promise, John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So again, we have this little statement that should jump out at us. Not as the world gives. Something about this peace is different 
from what we expect. He's giving not as the world gives, and he's giving the peace not that the world would offer, not that the world would demand. Later on, the writer of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul proclaims that Jesus makes peace between Jewish and Gentile believers. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, we read, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit, to the Father. So throughout the entire Bible, beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, we have this promise of a Savior sent by God to bring peace to his people, but we have a problem. All of these verses about peace are filled with violent imagery, having put to death the enmity. This is how peace is spoken of, right? And there are other verses that even seem quite contradictory to these passages that we just read. For example, look at Luke chapter 12, verse 51. So we read Luke 2, right, where the angels say there's peace. Then later in his life, Luke records that Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples about how he has to leave them, makes this promise. I already read that one. Oh, here. Got the wrong page. No wonder I'm confused. Luke 12.51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. So why did Jesus come? Was it to bring peace on earth? Have you guys ever... Have you guys ever actually read the Bible and thought about these places where you got things that are just like that's a that's the opposite, isn't that the opposite? Yes. In Matthew we read a similar statement that Jesus made where he said he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I think it would be hard to come up with two concepts that are more at odds with each other than peace and division or peace and a sword, right? So our temptation is to say, well, we have all these passages where peace is promised, 
So who knows what in the world Jesus was talking about there in Luke 12. But it certainly doesn't mean what it sounds like. We know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And of course, that's true. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But now, what are the connotations of that word prince, if you don't mind me saying? Today, in Disneyland, we think of prince as what? I mean, I th- I maybe even I shouldn't even say today. 20 years ago, in the Disney universe, you thought of a prince as somebody who rescued the princess, right? <clears throat> today, I don't even think you have the concept of a prince so much anymore in Disney movies, right? But even the concept of 20 years ago doesn't really bear any resemblance to the idea of the word prince as it's used in the Bible. The same word is often translated commander, captain, chieftain. That gives you a little bit better idea if if you think of prince as a guy in frilly clothes on a white horse. It's a very military word. We could say that Prince of Peace means commander of peace or chieftain of peace. Whoa. At the same time, we don't even really know what peace means, and this is where our confusion really comes from. We think we know what peace means, but we don't. And to prove it, I want to read Ben Stein to you. Okay? This was written years ago, during the Christmas season. You know who Ben Stein is, right? I, I read him on purpose, because if there's somebody in our culture that we would expect that we would be sympathetic to, it would, I think it would be Ben Stein. <clears throat> writer, actor, economist, lawyer in Beverly Hills and Malibu. If you're my age, you remember him better for Bueller. Bueller. Or maybe if you're older than me, you remember him as an advisor in the White House. Anyway, here's what he wrote. Today I will let other people talk about politics and economics. I am going to talk about something more important, peace. As I was asked over and over again what really makes me happy, I only had to think for about two seconds. Yes, of course, I am primarily grateful that I am in America, a shining city on a hill, that I have a great wife and son, that I get to live in peace and prosperity. But there is someone very close to my heart who brings me the best moments of peace I ever have. And peace is truly God's greatest gift. Bridget, my gorgeous German short-haired pointer. A word about Bridget. She was an abandoned dog. I got her at the Huntington Beach Animal Shelter. I've worked for two presidents in the White House, been in dozens of movies, played in one of the best sitcoms of all time, The Wonder Years, won Emmys for my quiz show. I've been married to a glorious wife for almost 40 years, and we have a handsome, rugged son. This is all good stuff, even great stuff. 
But none of this gives me the serenity that being next to a sweet, loving, big, furry dog gives. It's Christmas. Time for gifts. You can get the best gift there is, the gift of peace, for free at your local animal shelter. I'm, I'm not much of a dog lover. I can still acknowledge that having a devoted pet dog that simply looks at you and seeks to please is a very calming, peaceful, satisfying feeling. But is it okay if I laugh at Ben Stein now? The confusion here, that this is, this is our idea of peace. Let's be generous and say that Ben Stein is at least using the right word here when he says peace. Is this the sort of peace that we've been reading about in the Bible? What Ben Stein is talking about is exactly what we think of as peace at Christmas time. Okay? And what I want to do this morning is free you from the oppression of that idea that this is mandatory. That there be a, the, the equivalent in all of your moments and in all of your relationships, among all of your family members, and in all of the next week and a half of the sort of feeling that you get when you sink down in your easy chair and rub the top of your dog's head. Because that's not the peace that the Bible is speaking of. There is no commander of that peace. There is no chieftain of that peace. Do you understand? The peace of a warm fire and twinkling lights on a tree, our family surrounding the stockings, the presents everywhere. Of course, we can all look back on peaceful memories of Christmases in the past. But how many of you also have memories of fights and unbearable tension during these peaceful Christmases? Probably most of you do. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, The things that we face at Christmas time often are uh, the great enemies of this, even of this sort of peace, right? Aunts and uncles fighting with each other. <clears throat> Your stepsister brings her two little hellions and yet another boyfriend, and the stress level rises. Your mom doesn't think she has enough food or she burns the whatever, and the stress level rises. Or you forgot to get somebody a gift, and the tension builds, and pretty soon that peaceful Christmas isn't so peaceful anymore, is it? You can cut the tension in the air with a knife, 
and you breathe a sigh of relief when it's all over. And that's really why we end up liking Christmas and thinking back on it being such a peaceful time because it's that great relief when it's finally over and you can get rid of all of the decorations and it feels so good and you just, you just can't help but look back and think about how great lights are. After living through a couple of those kinds of Christmases, oftentimes we're willing to do anything it takes to keep people happy. But the promise of peace is not the promise that everybody in our families will get along. Look at Matthew 10, 35-40. After Christ says that he came to bring a sword, he describes it. He says, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So what Jesus is doing here is he is correcting his disciples' misconception about the peace that has been promised. So is Jesus the reason that you don't get along with your mother-in-law? No. So what does Jesus mean by saying this? Well, again, what kind of peace have we received through Jesus Christ? The promise of peace that those disciples have and that we have is not a promise that we will be at peace with our families. And if not the loved ones of our family, certainly not with other random people out there. Right? Fortunately, in the Bible we have descriptions of the peace as well as of the sword. So I just read the description of that division and what it's talking about. The peace that Jesus came to bring is not the peace of hugging your new dog, and it's not the peace of watching Christmas movies together. There are three things that are true about the peace we have in Jesus. First, the peace that Jesus brings is a peace between God and man, a peace between enemies. We read about it in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20 say, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the peace that God has promised through Christ. We are sinners before God, and we are his enemies without the work of Jesus on the cross. And this is the primary meaning of the promise of peace that we have in the Bible. 
We have peace in Jesus because of his death on the cross. Without that work, we are under the condemnation of God. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, we read the promise of God of peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. And that promise is followed by a warning. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So there's no question that Christ accomplished amazing peace for us. We were wicked, but Jesus Christ made peace with God for us. How did he do this? By dying. By suffering the violence of sinful men. And then, with a sword. That's how he makes his peace. By conquering death and hell, and sin, and Satan. He made war against evil, and he won. The result of this war, still to this day, is that a great divide has been cut between those who repent and believe on this Savior and those who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of families being divided. He demands to be first and foremost in our lives, ahead of all our closest relationships, because he is our Lord. Now, the second peace that's described is the peace between those who are united in Christ. This is the piece we read about in Ephesians where it says that we are united in one body. It's speaking of Christians, believers. We have an amazing peace with one another because we are one in him. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul says in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul is speaking to believers. And what he's saying is that peace that we have within the body of Christ is also accomplished by the crushing of Satan. Because we're in the blood of Christ, we are united to him in his victory over sin and death. And so the God of peace is a God who crushes his enemies. This is the same peace that the Lord promises us. Our enemy, Satan, is to be crushed beneath us. Finally, the peace that is described is a peace between us and all men. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We immediately think of the command that we're to love our enemies. How can you even begin to accomplish that task without Christ being at work in you? He has to make you able. 
But even when you love your enemies, sometimes that does not give you peace with them, right? So far as it depends on you, and if possible. What exactly do those phrases imply? That oftentimes, if we are going to remain faithful to Jesus, it won't be possible for us to be at peace with others. It won't depend on us. Let's look at an example. Think about Christmas when we spend time with our families. This, more than any other time, is when we want to live at peace with all people, right? Everyone's got this great motivation, specifically at Christmas. We're willing to do whatever it takes to make peace. But nobody's fooled by tight-lipped smiles as you say goodbye. Often our sin gets in the way of peace. When we lose our tempers at dinner, when we're impatient with kids, with parents, impatient waiting for the bathroom, this is where peace does depend on us. It's certainly more likely to be a time of peace and joy the less you sin. But that's only part of what happens at Christmas. What about when peace isn't possible and doesn't depend on us? Many of us have unbelieving family members who we're going to see this year have already seen. Are we willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus as we suffer for the gospel? Are we willing to proclaim that good news yet again? If we are one in Christ, we will not settle for a sentimental peace. If we love our family, we will not give them a false peace. We have this promise about Jesus, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All too often, we're willing to sacrifice friends and family members who do not know Christ under his feet, so that we can keep from being a source of division and contention. Yet think of these words of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We know intuitively what the result of proclaiming the gospel is. The gospel demands a decision. It's a sword cutting between joint and marrow. It divides people into those who accept it and those who reject it. And we're afraid that the gospel will be rejected. But that's not really what we fear. Really what we fear is that we will be rejected. And we will be rejected if we are in Christ. Jesus reminds us very patiently and tenderly that we're not better than him. They rejected him, and they will reject us too. So as you're interacting with friends and family, loved ones, and you think about what it would be like to say to them that 
you love them, that you're thankful for them, that you're happy to see them this Christmas, and that you're praying that they will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that last part where the bomb goes off, right? There's so many things that are come down on us as pressures at Christmas time under the pretext and the name of peace. And what I want you to do is I want you this Christmas to celebrate peace as the Bible proclaims it. Peace that gives us unity with Jesus Christ, with God our Heavenly Father, through his blood. Peace that gives us unity among Christians. And, and I know that's probably one of the hardest places here in this body, is where there's conflict and tensions between other believers. But I want you to be free from the pressure for there to be a peace that's based on lies, based on pretending that everything is fine. That's not what Christmas peace and the birth of Jesus Christ and the declaration of the angels are actually talking about. Just because you have a Christian family does not mean that you have complete peace. As we live together, we find out what it means for iron to sharpen iron. And we can say the same thing about our families. Who do you think will be most angry with you for disturbing the peace if you speak to the non-Christian in that loving way, declaring your hope for them to be saved? Often, it won't be that non-Christian that you said it to. It may be, but oftentimes it may be another Christian that's most angry at that moment. There's all sorts of reasons for this, and inevitably they will find many sins that they can point out in your life at that moment, why you're so offensive. And they'll be right about 99% of them. And that's why it's such a joy for me to, to say, but the good news is that your peace is on the basis of Jesus Christ, not on the basis of you not sinning. But what else is going on when the Christian gets angry at another Christian for messing up the peace? Often what's going on is that they've given up on their sister ever believing. And they don't want to have to face their own sin of refusing to share the promise of peace with God. or any number of other sins that that cause us to be pressured into silence and keeping the peace in this false way. 
in each area where God has given us peace, what we have to remember, what we must keep in mind, is that his sword is actively cutting. When you think of Jesus coming to bring peace on earth, you have to remember that he comes creating that peace by force with his sword. That happens in your own life as your sin is cut off and out from you. It's a violent process, and it's the only way that you'll have peace in your life. It happens as his people are divided from not his people. It happens as his enemies are crushed, because his enemies are the ones who are causing the lack of peace. In each and every place where his peace comes, it comes through his wielding of that sword. He cut out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. That's how you have peace. He set you apart from those who refuse his offer of life everlasting. He made a distinction. He divided you from them. And even in this body of believers where there is sweet unity, right in this church, we experience the joy of peace with one another. How? By having our sins confronted and having that purification process continue. I want to end by reading Psalm 72, 1 through 9. We know that Jesus is going to return. And so much of the Christmas season, we we can't begin to make sense of until we remember that all of the the promise of his coming, there's this second coming, this second coming that is yet to happen. And all of the promises are mixed up together. And and we look back to his first coming, we look forward to his second coming with joy. Why? Well, because as it says in Psalm 72, may he come down like rain, upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust." That's a peace that we rejoice in, that we love, that we celebrate. Don't seek false peace. And certainly don't be his enemy today. Make peace with him. Make true peace with one another. Let's pray.